You are listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. All right. Well, good morning, Keaton. If you would bring up the lights a little bit. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 today. We are doing our studies uh, through Genesis, and so uh, we're going to be in it all semester. And so um, Genesis chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, you can begin to open there. And we're going to see that things take a a hard left turn in our narrative, right? Genesis 1, God's creating things. Genesis 2, we kind of go more in depth of of just man and woman and the roles and the garden, and it's just beautiful. Uh, But things are going to take a hard left turn. It's like uh, my wife uh, married Sarah, beautiful wife. We've been married almost 10 years now. We've got four daughters, uh, and so love them. But one of the things when you have children... Uh, just know this, new parents. If you got a pair of kids and then they go off to the room and they're quiet, <laughs> so some of the you like some of you veterans, you're like, uh, that's not good. You think, oh, they're being quiet. <laughs> There's a reason they're being quiet, and so it's amazing how you know kids can go from so well behaved, everything's good, to then in just a short time, what can happen? Okay. So I got, uh, my wife uh, shot me some pictures about six months ago of our two daughters, our youngest, uh, Talitha and Janessa, went back in Janessa's room, and uh, they got into a little bit of, well, baby powder. And, uh, and so, I don't know if you can tell that, but some of that stuff's not supposed to be white, uh, like the, the chair and the, those children. And in fact, here's a close-up of them, I think, before she dumped them in the bath. Yeah. Yeah, get even closer on Janessa. You see the remorse she has on her face. She's just so sad that she disobeyed and destroyed everything. Okay, that makes sense. Things can turn fast when you have kids, and things turn fast here in the garden where things are perfect. Adam's naming the animals and husband and wife naked, no shame, no hurt, no pain. And all of a sudden, in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to see talking snakes, shifting of blame, curses, and death in an instant. And so we got some fun text to dive into. And I'm just so thankful. Uh, I don't know what preacher said, the word of God is like a lion. You need not defend it, just turn it loose. And so today, this narrative, we're just going to turn it loose. It's fun. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 says this, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Okay, time out. (laughs) All right, we see that that Satan, crafty, is already twisting God's word. Okay, do you see what he's saying? Did God say you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? And what he's doing here is he's wanting to call to question the goodness of God. And so he's planting these seeds of doubt there because What kind of God wouldn't let you eat from any of these trees in this garden? I mean, that doesn't sound like a very good God. So he's he's wanting to, to, to create this doubt, twisting God's word. And not only does he twist God's word, that God had a created order, created Adam, and then from him created Eve. But but Satan circumvents those roles, circumvents that order because he hates God and he hates us. And so he goes around and he, and he speaks to the woman in this way. And we see her response in verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, 
neither shall you touch it lest you die. Okay, time out there. Just to go on record. If you're going to say, thus saith the Lord, the Lord thus better have said it. Does that make sense? Like if you're going to say, God said this, and it's going to be, and you're going to go, and you're going to go on record with that, God better have said it. Otherwise, you're making God out to be a liar, and that is not good. What did God actually say? Verse, you can flip back in your Bibles. Check it. I'm not making this up. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. What did God actually say? And the Lord commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Notice he didn't say anything about touching that, right? What we see here is, is adding to God's command. And I think this is just such a, a human kind of just nature that we just want to take it to the next level. But not, failing to understand what God's word specifically said is a slippery slope. And Satan just kind of sees the opportunity, worms his way in, and he responds in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, oh, you will, I don't know how, else it, how he sounded, but it's like, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, do you see what he's doing? He's crafty. He's wanting to cast doubt about God's goodness. And he really makes this appeal like, no, no, that's not, God can't be good. Why would he hold out on you? That's what he's doing. He doesn't want you to be like him. And so he's calling to question the goodness of God. Jesus said of, of Satan in John chapter 8, verse 44, he says, when he speaks, uh, when he speaks, he, he lies. He speaks his native language, for he is a liar, the father of lies. Okay, so if you're taking notes, you need to understand this. Satan is a liar. Make sense? Okay. Satan is what? Thank you. Yes. Get that. He's a liar. That's just when he talks, it's just lies. That is what pours forth. And, and the, the root of those lies is, is God is not good. He, I can give you what you want. It's the same thing when Jesus has been fasting in the desert for 40 days. It's the same appeal that he makes to Jesus. Oh, I could give you kingdom. I can do this thing for you. I am good. And he just, it's the same thing that happened in the garden that he does with Jesus that is the same root of the lies that he breathes out today. He's wanting to us to call into question the goodness of God which is why 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This puts into context what we've seen last week. In Genesis chapter 2, God says, hey, mankind, you need to subdue creation. That word, like subdue, that is strong language, okay? You ever been like messing around in the pool with somebody? Maybe this is just the guy thing, but like, you start dunking people underwater, okay? If you've ever been subdued in that way where like somebody holds you under and you're like, this isn't fun anymore, like they keep holding you under, okay, that is the kind of language that it solicits here is like subdue, like hold, push down. And he told Adam and Eve to do that before the fall of mankind. He said, you need to subdue creation. That strong language, church, makes sense in context because he knew the serpent was coming, so what it would have looked like to subdue creation is not what we see here. Because what we see here is here they are just having a casual conversation with a talking snake in a garden. 
Does that make sense? That is not like a subdued language. That is, that is I don't know what that is, but it, but it doesn't go well because verse 6, as we, the narrative continues, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delightful to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, time out. Some of you read verse 6, and you're like, man, how that tree was looking good. Note, that is the same description of the tree that they were not supposed to eat that was used of every other tree in the Garden of Eden. Does that make sense? There is nothing that would distinguish this tree that they were forbidden from from any of the other trees in terms of like the fruit being more uh, appealing or more abundant. It's the same language used for every other tree. But yet, like when we get at this in our storybooks, it's like this big lush tree with like these beautiful red looking apples. We don't know. It could have been like a watermelon tree for all we know. Or like there's some jacked up fruit. You like walk down the aisle and you see some stuff and you're like, what is that? We don't know, but we just know that it was like Every other tree in the garden, good, pleasing, good for food. But this tree was forbidden. And so there's no indicator that this was better. And I hope this wasn't lost on you. Where was Adam at in this process? (laughs) Because there's this old like saying, oh, when uh, Adam was away, Eve went astray. That's wrong. (laughs) Like, don't say that. Because what, what, verse 6, what does he say in Scripture? He was with her. He was there like the whole time. Do you understand? Like it wasn't like, oh, he's right there. His wife is talking to a snake about to eat from the tree, which God told him don't eat from. And he was there the whole time. Now, you think of that subdued creation. A better response would have been to find the nearest log and to just crush the snake. Like that would have been an option to him, to subdue creation in that way. But instead, he just passively sits back and watches as a serpent twists God's word, watches as, as, a, as his wife struggles in the response. And not only that, he is right there eating from the fruit immediately as she turns and hands it to him. Instead of walking in his God-given role, he chose passivity. He lazily sits back and advocates his role of leadership. He watches it all goes down, joins in the disobedience. And that role that Adam plays in the fall of mankind, it is not lost on God. See what God has to say, verses 7 through 9. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together. And made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Do you understand that language? God's saying, Adam, where are you? He's calling to the man. Scripture makes that abundantly clear. 
Adam's role in this was not lost on God. He's supposed to subdue. He's supposed to protect. He's supposed to lead. Where are you? The promise of sin that we saw early on, the promise that, that Satan would want us to believe is that, that sin is, it, oh, it's good. We can be like God. But the reality of sin is it creates distance from God and distance from others. That's the main point that we're going to see in all of today's text is disobedience leads to distance. Disobedience leads to distance both vertically between us and God and others. See this in the text. And you have to understand, when I say distance, where were they at before this? Talk about how things change, right? Our kids, they're playing nicely. They're loving sisters. And then, boom, in an instant. Where were they at before this instant? They were in a garden, apparently able to walk with God. There was no sickness, no hurt, no pain, no toil and labor. They had the, the rivers watering their plants, abundance of every, every good thing that they could ask for. And the command was to, to be fruitful, multiply. Yet only Satan could make them think that they were missing out. Does that make sense? They, it was perfect, but yet Satan thinks, oh, you're missing out. There's more to be had than this. And the lie is that, that God's holding back something good. Therefore, you need to just go take it. And that disobedience leads to distance. And we see here that they're hiding from God. There's brokenness with their spouse. And so Satan, simply put, he wants to drive a wedge between us and God and us and other people. That's disobedience that leads to distance. That's Satan wants to just drive a wedge. And so you think about in our culture today, the wedges that are still being driven, the lies that are spoken to men that, that say, well, never mind your wife or your future wife. You deserve satisfaction now. So go ahead and look at what you want on the internet. Go ahead and find pleasure. That's what you deserve. And so go take that. That's the lie that is breathed out today. It says pornography is just, is not only culturally, but even had how acceptable it's become within the church. Because men believe that lie, and a wedge is driven between them and God and them and their spouse. To the child, the, the wedge I think that Satan would want to, to drive is, oh, it's okay to deceive your parent. I mean, you don't have to tell them about your homework that's not done. If you do that, they're going to take away your privileges and your freedoms. And so, so lie to your parent. Don't let them see what you're watching. Don't let them see the text. What do they know? And, and Satan would want to drive a wedge between children and their parents. I think of that when, when especially when, when children need their parents most, when they're going into these high school years and they're really trying to figure out this adulthood. The wedge is just so driven. And I believe Satan just delights in that, that, that what they need is godly parents help giving them guidance and shepherding them, but there's just a wedge driven by just sin. I think it's the whisper to the wife that, that would say, your husband's lazy. It's not your fault. He was better when you were dating him, and it's not your fault you got tricked into marrying him. Man, if you want something done, you know you're going to have to do it. You know you're just going to have to take matters in your own hands. It's the same whisper that was to Eve back in the garden that is still happening to the daughters of Eve today, and I just believe Satan wants to drive a wedge. That's his goal is to create distance between us and other people. And it's not just me preaching. I'm saying myself, these lies that get spoken, 
Like even as I'm thinking about this, the lies that I can believe is that you shouldn't be a pastor. This is just, it's hard. I mean, people might follow you, but I don't know that they actually like you. These are lies that get whispered to me in like these moments where it's like, man, I just, I just want to stop. And I hear Satan say, you should, you should just stop, be easier. It's the lies that, that I'm telling you that I believe at times. Doubting God's goodness and, and missing perspective. And, and when I start to buy into those lies and when I start to believe that, I start looking within, start being more self-centered, and it creates distance between me and my wife, me and other people, because there's just this wallowing of self-pity. I feel distance from God. And so what I need is, is this community to restore me and bring back truth. But, but this cycle is like I'm believing these lies. And so what I need is actually what I'm repelling and, oh, May God have mercy. And what we see here is this distance. In verse 10, he says this, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now, I just want to stop. Everyone will respond to their sin. It's human nature. You will respond to your sin. It's just a matter of if you're going to respond right or wrong. Does that make sense? Not everybody's going to respond to a Cheerio dropping out of their cereal bowl and rolling across the ground, right? Like, some of you are like, whoop doo doo like something will get it. But you will, if you spill a plate of nachos in your kitchen, like, like, like the big nacho thing, it doesn't matter if you're a kid, if you're a bachelor, if you're married, whoever, you will respond to a spilled plate of nachos in your kitchen, right? Like, some response... <laughs> Like, be it like just pull like the rug over it or like call the dog or like try and mop it up. Like, you will respond. Like, spilt nachos solicits some sort of response. In same regard, like sin, you will respond to your sin. We see Adam and Eve, they're going to respond to their sin. It's just a matter if they do it right or wrong. And the initial response we see here is their desire to conceal sin. And we see that in verse 10, is they hid themselves in the garden, hid themselves behind fig leaves. Their response to sin was to cover it up, was to conceal it. Does that make sense? Do you see that in scripture? So they want to, they want to withdraw. And I think in our culture, like, oh, when you want to cover up sin, you want to withdraw. You don't want to be around people that are going to ask you hard questions, right? Because they might just draw that out of you. And so how do you create distance between other people so they don't ask you those questions? How do you purge your searches? How do you, how do you kind of put that distance in, in, in order to kind of cover it up? I'm saying that, that is what Satan wants more than anything, is to us to choose to conceal sin, to keep it in the dark, and to address it alone. Satan would want nothing more than that. You have to understand that, church. Satan would want you to conceal your sin, keep it alone and in the dark. Because he'd love to fight you alone and he'd love to fight you in the dark because he's nocturnal, right? And so that's what Satan wants, is he wants you to conceal it. And so that's not a great response to sin. And rest assured, Numbers 32, verse 23 says, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. We study Galatians and it says, you will reap what you sow. This will come up. You can put the rug over the nachos, but come time, like it will be made evident. 
as it is with our sin. And so you're right to want to deal with your sin. That's a wrong response, concealing it. Amen? Does that make sense? You're right to want to deal with it, but that's the wrong response is concealing. But it's soliciting some response. It's just not the right one. Does that make sense? So everybody's going to respond to their sin. It's just whether you're going to respond correctly. Concealing it, that is not the right response. Nor is what we see next, justifying your sin. Verse 11, he said, "Who told, this is God speaking, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave me, <laughs> let me read this clearly. <laughs> the woman who you gave to me to, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. You see what's happening here at the blame game? I love, like, I don't love, but Adam's response, you have to find it a little bit humorous. It's like, I don't, it's not me. I know, like, it's not me. It's either her or your fault, God. Like, because you gave her to me, and then she gave me the fruit. Either way, like, I'm pretty justified in my sin. (laughs) Does that make sense? He's no longer trying to, like, like, pretend it's not there. It's like, oh, it's there. I just justify because you made her, she gave it to me, so I'm good. To which it's like, it goes to Eve. It's like, Eve, what do you have to say? It was like, well, the snake. I mean, he's, clearly we can blame the snake, right? And so there's this blame game. There's this failure to, to own it. And it's, it's, it's a wrong way to deal with sin is to justify it. Oh, I can hurt people because somebody hurt me. So therefore, it's okay. I mean, married couples, how many of this, like, vicious cycle do you get in where it's like, well, you said this, so therefore I got to say this. And, and here we go and just spirals. Somehow, like justifying our wrong responses. Hurt people hurt people. And so what we see here is that a wedge is being driven by this blame game. I, old Pastor Tom, you know, he's, he loves, uh, he's a great teacher. And one of the things he said is eight of the hardest words to string together in the English language is I was wrong, will you please forgive me? Does that make sense? Like, I was wrong, will you please forgive me? I mean, that could have been a response of Adam. Could it not have been? Could, he, could God have said, hey, what happened? And Adam stepped forward and said, it's my fault. It's my fault. I'll own it. I was right there. I'll own it. I should have led. I should have done these things. I was wrong. God, will you please forgive me? But he doesn't. I'm saying it's in our nature to want to conceal. It's in our nature to want to justify. And I just wonder, I wonder what God's response would have been had he owned his sin in that way. We won't know because what we see is justifying. And what we see is in doing so, this disobedience leads to distance between him and God Instead of walking with God, he's hiding from him. And it leads to distance between him and his spouse. Instead of naked and no shame, hiding behind fig leaves. Disobedience creates distance. And what we see in Genesis 3, this passive masculinity is just a dangerous thing. I think it goes without saying what we need in the home and what we need in churches is is strong men to step up and love, protect, to lead. 
And strong men make way for strong women. And so last week, if you missed it, just to be clear so nobody walks out with just part of the information, men and women created both in the image of God, equal. I love how Luke said it. He's like, if you don't believe men and women are equal, you're just wrong. Men and women are equal, but they have been given different roles. And just because they've been given different roles does not equate value in some way. Within the Trinity, we see different roles. The Holy Spirit did not die on a cross for our sins. Jesus did. But that doesn't make the Holy Spirit any less God, right? And so within the Trinity, you see difference of roles does not equate to difference in equality. In men and women, there is difference in roles, but it doesn't mean difference in worth. And so men and women complement each other. In the homes, traditionally, the mother is going to be uh, more nurturing, patient, just in tune with what is going on in the home. Dads are strong protectors to discipline. And so there's kids need both, a mom and a dad in the home. The church needs both, strong men and strong women. But yet what we see clear back in the garden that happened there is still absolutely happening today. Where men passively sit back in this passive masculinity where you look like a man but you're not playing the role of a man is a dangerous thing and it leads to the fall of mankind and we continue reading there's consequences for not obeying the Lord the consequences verse 14 now the Lord said to the serpent because you have done this cursed are you above all livestock above all the beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head uh, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. These are the curses from God. He said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground of which you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return." I want to break those curses down, kind of starting with the men first in reverse order. What does he say in verses 17 through 19? He's saying, work is going to be hard now, Adam. You had these beautiful rivers that watered the garden, trees of all kinds just producing fruit. Man, who doesn't love like a good fruit tree? Like a garden, you have to weed this. When a tree is established, you're just like, apple, thank you very much. Boom, there you go. He had that, but now thorns and thistles. Man, this is why water will leak into your basement. This is why your car, it doesn't matter how new it is or whatever it is, like it will break down. This is like the fall. Those things are going to happen. It's a promise right here from God. There will be thorns and thistles. And rest assured, that's not what God originally intended work to be like. But now because of the fall, man up, roll up your sleeves and enjoy the sweat because it's coming. And I would just say, we've alluded to this in this text, that, that men, that we see in Adam a passivity, this desire to just stand back and, and not embrace this role of leader and headship, to not protect, to lead, to love. 
I think that same fleshly desire, it's safe to say, is in men today. Right? Every TV sitcom has stumbled upon this. The man, he just gets home from work, checks out. He, he, when he tries to do something, he doesn't do it right, so his wife just kind of nags at him until he gives up leading altogether, and he's just one of the kids at home. I mean, go through the, the TV sitcoms in your head and, and show me the exception to that where the men is not portrayed in that way, and it's, it's portrayed in that way because it resonates with so many homes. That men tend to be like their father, Adam, and be lazy and push things off. And that is why we can look to Jesus, the second Adam, who got it right. And Jesus embraced what it meant to be, what we should be men, where we should lay down our lives. Philippians 2 said, not out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than ourselves. Look to their interests, serve. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14. You can look this up. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, 14 says this, men. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all you do be done in love. Ladies, I'm going to ask you to respond here. Do you agree with God's word in a desire to have strong men? Six of them do, okay? Let me ask you again. This is your opportunity to let your voice be heard, okay? The correct answer is yes. Ladies, do you want, this is what God's word said. Let me read it again. This is what God wants. God wants men, be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong, do all you do in love. Ladies, is that the kind of man you would want? Yes. Thank you, okay. And I'm saying God would want that of you clearly from his word. The gals here, we need men, men to be men, to lead, to guide homes, to continue to roll up the sleeves, enjoy the sweat, work, and lead out of love. Not domineering, not chauvinistic, but lead in love like Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, sacrificed his life. Yeah, men do that. That's what scripture would call you to. And when men are doing that, I believe it's the heart cry of women who are like, yes, that's what I desire. Women, I would just, I would pray that you would join in that prayer, praying for men to be strong. Make room for that to happen. And men, just invite you to be the men that God would have for us. Not be like Father Adam in that way. Women, verse 16, there's some curses there. Part of the fall, apparently it's more painful to give birth to a child now post-fall than it was pre-fall. I don't know what pre-fall was. Bridget, you just had a kid like five days ago when you're here at church, right? Pleasant experience, right? <laughs> no! I've never given birth, but, but having seen my wife give birth to four, it appears to be painful. <laughs> Even the things that don't normally come out of her mouth that were coming out of her mouth, a very painful experience. You have the fall to thank for that, right? And so there's pain in childbearing. And moreover, part of the curse, what does he say in verse 16? There's confusion. Because some of your translations might read, yet your desire will be for your husband. The ESV says this, your desire should be contrary to your husband. A desire that's for your husband, that doesn't sound like a curse. But the actual reading there, it, what, it, it, what, what it's using is the same language we're going to see next chapter, Cain, Abel, Genesis chapter 4, God would talk to Cain like this. He says, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. The door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. What this means 
is, ladies, there is a fleshly desire because of the curse that, to rebel against your husband and his leadership. That's the knee-jerk kind of, if you're just operating out of the flesh, that's the desire. And what he would say to Cain in regards to sin, he's saying, don't give in to that. And what he's saying, ladies, that is there. Your desire is to rule over your husband. It's to, to think less of him, to push him down. And again, turn on the TV. What sitcom doesn't have that woman playing the leading role? Pushing down the husband, beating him up, shaming him because he didn't get it 100% right, shaming him to the point where he's just unwilling to lead altogether. That is the fleshly response that what he'd say is, that might be the desire, but you don't have to give in to that. And that is not what it means to empower women, is to shame men and push them down. Jesus, I would just say this. You can study this out in further context, but, but Jesus was countercultural, right? If he said, if you want to be first, you need to be last. The way up is, is by, by going down, serving, humble themselves. First Peter would say it like this, women. It'd say it to the wives. And he's talking to, uh, he, I'll just read it. You interpret it. Likewise, likewise wives. First Peter 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. What he's saying there is that wives, when you are respectful to your husband, when you have pure conduct towards him, when you love and submit to your husbands in that way, he's saying from scripture that it is such a powerful testimony of what Jesus Christ has done. The unbelieving husband can put their trust in Jesus without words. It's so clearly portrays the gospel. When a woman lives like that, it is so powerful. It is the only place I know in all of scripture where somebody can say, Lord, forgive me. I'm wrong. Please forgive me of my sins. My trust is in you. They can deduct all that purely by the life being lived. It is such a powerful testimony and it's so countercultural. And I'm saying to do that is going to fight against this curse in Genesis 3.16. Gals, it didn't work in the garden. It's not the long-term solution to believe the lion just take control. And I'm not excusing weak men by any means. Bring your weak husband over. We'll have a talk. But what I am saying, gals, I'm inviting you to please, I think one of the, here's why I believe the gospel is at stake with this. When gals can display that, it is such a powerful testimony what God has done it says, I trust the Lord. My hope is in God. And it communicates that so clearly. It puts the gospel on display. And I know that's countercultural. We think, well, if you want to do that, you got to be elected president or you got to have some power. I'm saying Jesus displayed God's power by humbling himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Humility is powerful. And when, gals, when you take that posture in the workplace of speaking well of your husband, encouraging, honoring his leadership, come on, tell me that isn't going to shock some of the ladies in the office, right? People don't speak like that. Certainly, you're not going to find that on TV. And so it is a powerful testimony. 
And both men and women, we're going to see that, thankfully, as the narrative continues, God does not treat us as our sins deserve, Psalm 103, verse 10. We'll continue in the narrative. We wrap it up. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living things, verse 20. In 21, the Lord God made Adam for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take uh, also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man uh, in the east of the garden of Eden, and he placed a cherubim with a flaming sword and turned away uh, every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What does God do here? God shows his love. He doesn't treat them as the sins deserve. What does he do right away? He makes for them clothes. And don't let this be lost on you. These weren't loincloths. He makes full-on garments. But I don't know if you catch this. This is the first death in the garden. Some animal had to die in order to make that possible. And so God, in his love, something has to die for him to cover them. Another thing, you see, he drove them out of the garden. Why? What was at the heart of that? Because he did not want them to take from the tree of everlasting life and live forever separated from them in their sin. And so God doesn't want them to live forever in their sin. It's God's grace that we will leave this place and be reunited with him. And so he guards him from the tree of life, showing his love. If that wasn't enough, earlier on, we kind of skipped over it, but his love that he made the promise that one day Satan's head would be crushed, that Jesus Christ would come, defeat death. You want to cover sin the right way? It's through the blood of Jesus Christ alone that our sin can actually be covered. Jesus Christ took the punishment that we deserve, that I deserve, for the lies, the, the believe, the distance. He bridged that gap by being crucified to a cross. And so it's because of what Jesus has done that we can be united with God. That's the hope that we can have that is being foreshadowed here. And so there have been a few, um, a few gals in our, our, our ministry that I'm going to invite up. I didn't bring the handheld up. I don't know if Keaton or Christina, one of you guys can run that up. Oh, it's right here. Never mind. Uh, but there's, there's been a few uh, that we celebrated last week, uh, a couple students that got baptized. We're going to celebrate baptisms again. And what we are saying here, and you gals can come on up, is these gals have said, man, my trust is in Jesus and for what he has done. And so uh, I'm going to just let them uh, share their stories. Chris, I'm going to let you video it here um, so we can record this. So I'm going to just let them share how they're trusting Jesus. You guys, come on over. You're getting, sorry, you're going to be the center of things. So, yeah, let me go okay. first. Hello, I'm Olivia. Um, so I was baptized when I was either five or eight. There's a discrepancy in my family over when it actually happened. <laughs> I asked him last night. I was like, so how old was I? And I was like, you were five. And my dad's like, she was eight. So who knows? But <laughs> the point of it was I did it because I felt like it was expected of me. It was encouraged by the church. And I was like, this is what you do if you want to be a Christian. But I never really put any thought past that. So as the years went on, I kept, couldn't help feeling like I wasn't really saved. Like there was something still more I had to do. And I just felt this separation from God like throughout my life. And during like junior high and high school, that kind of turned to me, turning to worldly things to find purpose. And I just ended up feeling really lost and confused. Like I, I, did, I felt purposeless. And when I came into college, I actually had like severe anxiety and depression. 
and I was just very confused and not really sure where I was going in life. So I came to SALT at the beginning of this past year, just kind of coming because everyone encouraged me to go to it, and I just kind of sat through the services and was like, this doesn't really apply to me. I don't, <laughs> I'm just going here for like face value. But then one night during worship, I just felt God's presence. And it was amazing. Like there was just this voice in my head saying, stop fighting it, Olivia. Why are you fighting against all of God's love and grace? And I went out with my connection group leader and prayed. And I was like, I want God to direct mm -hmm. my life. I want to give my life to him. And then at the, um, the SALT conference over that weekend, I just, I like got down on my knees and prayed and I was like, I want God to, I want to dedicate my life to him. I want to surrender my life to him. And let me tell you, it is immeasurable joy. <laughs> like all the pleasure, any joy I could feel from worldly things, they are, do not compare. It's amazing to feel connected to God and to other people. And so that's why I'm here today to get baptized and surrender my life to him and just declare how happy I am to have God leading my life. That's awesome. <laughs> Hi, good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Katrina, um, and I'm an, a freshman here at Mizzou. Um, so I've grown up going to church my whole life in Chicago, um, but for years I never felt um, that I had or needed a relationship with God. Um, but it was in the middle of my senior year of high school when I was invited to the baptism of one of my really, really close friends. Um, and I arrived at service with a group of people that I didn't really know. You know, I was just there for my close friend. Um, but after she was baptized, there were people praying and crying and cheering and everything I could ever imagine. And, um, and I felt the Holy Spirit in that room. Um, and I've never felt like that where these people who were strangers to me soon became my brothers and sisters. Um, and so it was in that moment that I decided that I wanted an intentional, purposeful, and dedicated relationship with Christ. Mm -hmm. um, and after that moment, everything broke. <laughs> everything in my life broke. Um, I watched friendships and relationships of mine that I thought I would have my whole life just burn to the ground. Um, and I had never felt so broken, discarded, and just unwanted. Um, but Christ left the 99 to come running after me. Mm -hmm. um, I slowly came to understand that the, relations, the relationships that I lost were only rooted in selfishness and desire um, and in history, and they will fall to the ground every single time. Um, God is the only firm foundation. Um, and even in the state of brokenness, God is so good. Um, he continues to provide blessing after blessing in my life. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Um, and today I'm declaring that God has transformed my life and I am new in him. Um, and just lastly, um, I know there's nothing miraculous in this water, but I know that, some, that God is doing something miraculous in me. So thank you so much this morning. Yeah. So we'll let, uh, there's some gals that are going to have been pivotal in their spiritual formation. So you guys can come on up. Band, you guys can come on up. And so here's, you guys can roll around to the back of the tank and Olivia will let you go first. But um, there's nothing magical about the water. Got it out of the tap right out there. So it's not washing away sins. Clearly you heard these gals proclaim their trust is in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. He covers and paid the punishment that we deserve. And so what we're doing with the water is we're saying our trust is in Jesus' death 
his burial in the tomb, and then his resurrection, that he didn't stay dead, but he, he came back to life, ensuring that we can have life after life. And so their trust is in Jesus Christ. And so you're going to have an opportunity to proclaim your trust in Jesus too. First and foremost is in the waters of baptism. If you have yet to do that, invite you to follow in believer's baptism. This tank, I mean, we have the building now. We can fill it up whenever, okay? So would invite you uh, to do that. But everyone else, you get an opportunity, if you've been baptized and you're saying, my trust is in Jesus, to do what he said to do in remembrance of his body broken, his bloodshed, and that's celebrate communion. And we have communion stations kind of set up around the room. And after these gals have been baptized, and just invite you to, to make your way towards one of those communion uh, tables and just break off a piece of bread signifying Jesus' body broken and dip it in the cup signifying his blood shed and take that. And I would just invite couples, if you need to have a moment before you go over there or kind of at the station, just stand to the side. And I would just, in light of today's text, want to give freedom. And we even have leaders kind of standing in some of these corners that, that would love to just pray with you if you want to be prayed over. And so that's what's going to happen. But first and foremost, as the band kind of plays, these gals are going to jump in there, be baptized by some of the gals that have been crucial in their spiritual formation. And then when they come out of the water, again, please remain seated so everybody can see, but feel free to cheer loudly, okay? Mid-song, doesn't matter. Cheer loudly. And then again, after they've been baptized, we'll take communion together.